Welcome to this week's episode of From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. This week's episode features Angelo Gingerelli. Angelo is assistant of strength and conditioning at Seton Hall University and recently co-authored a book titled Finish Strong, Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes. We start our conversation by discussing Angelo's starting point for athletes and discuss the benefits of grooving generalized patterns. Angelo shares the six movement patterns that he likes to build proficiency in with his athletes. Angelo discusses how he periodizes an off-season period for baseball athletes. And we end our conversation by talking about how and why runners should include resistance training in their arsenal. If you're a runner and have wondered how to effectively bring the strength realm to your training, this is a conversation you'll find useful. Let's get to it. Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and my guest this week is Angelo Gingerelli of Seton Hall University. How you doing, Coach? Great, Coach. Good to meet with you today. Yeah, awesome, man. I'm really excited to sit down with you. You've been in the strength and conditioning game for some time. You work with a lot of different populations. Uh, obviously, today we're probably going to talk a little bit more about resistance training and running. You have a great book out that I'll allow you to talk about more later, Finish Strong, which is dealing with resistance training for endurance athletes. So looking forward to kind of talk about some of those different things and just some of the things that you've kind of encountered in all this time that you've been in strength and conditioning. So if you don't mind, just give us a little introduction about kind of how you got started in the field where you are currently and what kind of interests you at this point? So I was born, I was in high school in the 90s at the Jersey Shore. It's kind of where I grew up. It's kind of, I'm kind of back in the area now, but like a lot of strength coaches, I've moved around a lot. And I was super lucky. I went to a public high school that had, for the time, a very good weight room and a great strength and conditioning coach, right? Now you look back, the, the, the science, we know more, we train differently. Things have gotten better in 30 years. But the idea of a strength coach being a big part of an athlete's life and really helping him or her get better hit me super early. And I, coach Ron DeVito, we still talk once a month or more. He's been probably the biggest mentor in my career. Super lucky to just fall into that situation in a public high school 25 years ago, right? And I decided I wanted to be involved in that world in some capacity. As I was a senior, the University of Delaware had just started at the time the first and only uh, exercise science degree with a concentration in strength and conditioning. And I saw that and I was like, I want to do that. I want to be part of the first kind of group of guys and girls to get, get uh, that kind of education in their undergrad. So I went there and I started interning with Tony Decker in a weight room right away. Freshman year, 19 years old. Just kind of seeing what college athletics was all about from the strength and conditioning side of things. Graduated from the University of Delaware with that, that degree in exercise science, strength and conditioning uh, concentration. Right to, and the last thing I had to do to finish up that degree was an internship at another facility, right? So I went down to NC State. And I interned there for a summer. It was a great experience. I got to work with the football and basketball teams with Charles Stevenson. And then I was lucky enough to fall right into a graduate assistantship at Virginia Tech. So I did two years in the weight room at Virginia Tech. I got my master's, master's of education in health promotions. And then another kind of stroke of luck, right as I graduated Virginia Tech, a full-time position opened up at NC State where I'd already known the whole staff. And I was able to start that just like a couple weeks later kind of thing. NC State for a couple of years, our baseball team did incredibly well. I'm not out of my mind. I thought I had some impact on that success. We just had great players that put together a great couple of years. I went from there to a season with the Pittsburgh Pirates. 
And then right after that season, I started at Seton Hall in 2005 and I've been at Seton Hall in Northeast New Jersey, where I grew up. Uh, for, I just finished up my 17th year. So, so many listeners around the country were a small Catholic school in New Jersey. We are in the Big East, where we play pretty, pretty big time sports, but it's not, I don't know, for a national brand the way some of the other schools in the Big East might be. We're an urban campus and we're right outside of North New Jersey and South Orange, about seven miles from the Empire State Building in Manhattan. And then uh, I, just, I always tell people, man, I got lucky so many times in my career. But the biggest one is I grew up a Seton Hall fan. I had a Seton Hall starter jacket when I was a kid. I watched them go to the NCAA tournament throughout the 80s and 90s. And then for the last close to 20 years, I kind of hit the lottery of being allowed to be back and be some part of this thing I grew up being a fan of. And it's where I grew up. And it's where my family is. And it's become this generational thing where, like, when I was a kid, I went to the games with my dad. And when I first got the job, my mom and dad came to the games. And now I'm taking my daughter to our games. So it's really just kind of a cool thing where that doesn't work out for everybody. But I've been lucky enough to kind of move around the country early on in my career and settle down in a really good place in a really good position for, you know, close to two decades now. Those are all great points, coaches. I like going back to one of the first things that you discussed there, the role of strength and conditioning, even at a high school level, uh, because, you know, we were talking earlier and that's what I currently facilitate. I work in my own hometown. So a lot of the things you were saying, getting to go back home, getting to work, you know, and, and kind of making it a family deal. If you've listened to any of my stuff, you know, that kind of a family deal with within our business as well. So, and, and listening to the influence and the role that we can have on young athletes as well in a strength and conditioning uh, program, you know, a lot of my audience probably, is involved in SNC, uh, probably at a high school level, some perhaps uh, beyond that or in the uh, private industry as well. Uh, but you can have such an impact on young athletes. I myself can remember my uncle coming and getting me and taking me to workouts. I wasn't on the high school team yet, but like my love for the weight room and my love for like agilities and strength and conditioning just totally bloomed from there. So uh, great to hear that. I'm familiar with Seton Hall because of, like you said, the NCAA tournament. I've seen them there multiple times. So a uh, basketball program, right? Yes. Yeah, that, that's, our, that's obviously our marquee sport. Uh, we've had a really good baseball team in the last you know, 15 years or so. And then a couple of our sports have done well, but those are our two main programs. Excited to have you on, Coach. Great introduction there. The first place I'd kind of like to start, because with you dealing with your book, Finish Strong, talking about resistance training for endurance athletes, I'm always interested in running because just about every sport you're going to be dealing with is going to deal with running in some form or capacity. So let's talk about, about starting assessments points for runners uh, and biomechanics of running. So you have people come in, you work with a variety of uh, populations, obviously I've seen. So you can kind of talk us through some of the finer points. What are some of the first things you're looking at as far as ability to run? Okay. I think there's a couple things that I kind of agree exactly what you said that running is going to be a component of just about any sport we play. Right. So to some extent you want to get, have a good biomechanics, good running technique. And then I think once you establish that you could work on actual sports specific speed. Right. So for example, I, I do a ton of stuff with our baseball guys and we can do all the base stealing drop step, lead break stuff. I want, if that guy can't get from a to B quickly, none of that really matters. Right. So the one thing I always say to young athletes as a high school strength coach, I like to see your, your opinion on this too. I think young kids should do track from a pretty early age. Then the idea of learning how to run with a track coach that knows how to run what running should actually look like puts that guy or girl or that boy or girl in a much better place for success later on in their athletic career than maybe doing some other things in that, that winter spring season when high school track is happening. Would you agree that's a good place to start for a lot of people? I, I do agree with you, coach. And I, and I think that the pure pursuit of speed, there's nothing wrong with that. And I just think it's, it's a great place. Like I even had an endurance person on earlier, the previous podcast before this, and they talked about how they use that with their endurance runners. So I think everybody can really benefit from that. And I always encourage multi-sport athletes 
athletes, and I feel like it fits really well with the population I normally deal with, football. Uh, but even kids that go from you know football to baseball, there's still room to run track. There's still room to do different things, or even jump as well. Uh, all yeah, could be beneficial question. for sure. Now, now, with that being said, as far as assessment goes, when I get to meet people, if they haven't done that first step and, and, and run track as a kid or high school player, um, I kind of kind of look at some very basic metrics in the weight room, right? And there's a, there's a million different ways you could do that. But I kind of do a dynamic warm-up, and I start the eyeball test immediately, right? Like, if we're, if we're just doing some body weight squats, what does that look like? Can they keep their heels down? Can they push their hips back? Can they stay flat-footed and get even close to parallel? And this weird thing with endurance athletes is some people that are, quote-unquote, I got the air quotes going, in shape – are terrible at just that very basic movement pattern, right? So if we can't even do a body weight squat, to me, everything else is going to get progressively worse. So how do we start working on that body weight squat? And one thing I'll do with my players is we'll take the things we're struggling with and make that part of a warm-up every day or almost every day, right? So we got somebody that, that can't squat for whatever reason. We're going to do some kind of squatting every day. We're going to warm, we're going to warm up. And then we're going to do a body weight squat, overhead squat with a dowel. We might do a, a squat using a rack for balance, something like that, until we get better at that. I kind of take lunging the same way. What's their lunge look like? Can they get in that good low position, keeping their weight their, their weight centered over their back knee, not drifting over their front knee? Is their posture good enough to stay in that position? Then try to start making mini assessments in that, right? Where's the break in the kinetic chain that's not letting them do that? And then start programming to get better at that. Now, that being said, when I, I work with some, some high school kids on like a private level and working them personal training-wise, that's very simple, right? The tr training a team is a whole different ballgame because you, I mean, you do it a lot of football players at one time. I do with a ton of different athletes at one time. So what I kind of do then is I try to look for trends, right? So if I say most of the team has incredibly tight hamstrings, well, then we're going to put some hamstring work throughout our workout and bake it in. To, even though if, say, you got 15 guys – 13 of them have tight hamstrings, two are fine. Well, those guys that are quote-unquote fine are going to still benefit from that work, right? So I kind of look at what the group needs and then program for those needs. And then if there's a, a man or woman that needs some help beyond that, we'll stay after, we'll show up earlier and do something a little more sport-specific to address those needs, right? But what I see across the board with runners, and particularly endurance runners, are incredibly tight hamstrings, an incredible lack overall strength but particularly posterior change change strength right yeah guys are going to go run 20 miles but can't even think about doing a pull-up without assistance okay um and then i think the other thing you want to look at is just tightness and lack of flexibility just about all over their body right so i think that's one thing our profession has gotten much better at the last five ten years is that, that advent of things like foam rolling, self-massage, ways to get the, the roll, you know, the, the stick mobility and stuff like that. Start to kind of address that. that getting stronger is absolutely 100% component of what we should be doing as strength coaches. Anyone would agree with that. But if the body's not working and functioning well enough to do the core basic strength building movements, we got to address that foundation first and get to where we can do, in my opinion, body weight squat, body weight lunge, an RDL or kettlebell swing in a good, with good technique and have the posterior chain both strong enough and mobile enough to do those movements. And then we can get good at them, right? Then we can start putting some weight on the bar, heavier kettlebells, whatever it might be. And that's, I think, an uphill battle with a lot of people. I think we, we blame younger kids for this, but we see it in college kids and definitely adults. They want to put weight on the bar right away, right? They, everybody wants to put some plates on and go. And I'm the bit, I could be the Biggest meathead put some weight on the bar guy there is, but we got to do it right. We got to get the 
parallel or close. We got to have our heels, whatever it's going to be, whatever our metric success are going to be. We got to get good at step A before we start putting weight on for step B. A lot of good points there. Uh, I'd like to kind of dice up a little bit more about like dynamic warmups and like how okay. you view the, the role of the warmup uh, since we were talking about that. Just for me to throw a couple things in there. I like how you talked about the dynamic of a team situation because whenever I work with individuals or small group settings, the things you're able to do, like you said, you can tailor to needs much more. And that doesn't mean that in a team setting that you can't, but I, I do agree. You have to identify those trends and it's like everybody can benefit a little bit from doing these different things. Like you talked about, you know, being able to squat and stuff. Like I think you can affect your muscle tone and, and your tautness through these different variations that you're talking about. And I think everybody can benefit from some of those more general things. Like I love the lunge stuff you, you talked about, like uh, doing lunge vectors and things like that. It slows things down. I do that sometimes in between like speed sessions because uh, it gives my kids a, a moment to take a breather, to take a break, and to also get something beneficial because we probably all understand uh, as sports prep coaches that we need for our kids to look like they're doing something, even if yeah. it's time for rest. So I've had to insert things like that too. Um, so just some things that were bouncing around in my head there. And I, th I think one thing that's interesting about that, I think a lot of people that are maybe they're just authors or just in the lab or just kind of cranking out content without really working with groups, particularly groups of young people. I've seen a lot of this idea of like Monday's your mobility day, Tuesday's your strength day. Wednesday is your speed day, whatever it might be, right? And what I find that works better in the real world, I'd like to get your opinion on this, is maybe do 20 minutes of each of those things each day. So you still get an hour of training, but nobody's getting bored of it, right? Um, they get take, my wife's a yoga instructor, and her clients are super into doing yoga and getting as flexible as they can, and they sign up to, to stretch for an hour, right? Your typical high school, college kid is not stretching for an hour. It's going to be torture for them, torture on a person instructing it. They don't have the mental capacity. They don't understand the value. But if I can say, give me 10 minutes. Give me 10 minutes when we start. We're going to do this lunge sequence. We're going to do this time whenever it is. And then we're going to do something fun. We're going to lift. We're going to run. Whatever it might be fun or at least hard where we know we're doing something. And I think sometimes you got to put the put the medicine in the candy kind of thing of like, give me a good Good dynamic warm up and work on this mobility stuff, which I know you think is boring, but we know, but we know it's important as coaches. And then we'll go and do the stuff you want to do. The joke, I, you know, I always say this, I think it's true. In New Jersey, our baseball guys at Seton Hall, and I can say this because I grew up as one of them, were just Jersey Shore Guido meatheads like you see on the MTV show, right? And they want to do bench and curl and, and tricep extensions all day. They look good when they go to the club. Now, here's my thing we can do it. I'm not going to tell you don't curl, that's fine. Well, you got to do your squats, your RDLs and your, you know, plyo box jumps or whatever first. And then if it's Friday morning and we got some extra time, now we'll do a curl circle or something like that. Um, and that's one thing that we got to get a little bit better, especially kind of meeting our clients and their athletes where they are and give them, like you said, this dynamic warm-up we want to talk about, it's great. It's phenomenal. It's very important. But if your team doesn't necessarily see the value in it right away, can we disguise it as something else and get them to put some effort into it and commit to that while they're getting that good mobility work in? So before we kind of talk about the uh, dynamic warm-up stuff some more, I like two things you said there, and, and I've actually rationalized things this way as well. You talking about throwing these different portions of a session in there. We used to organize our week to where like we had two separate groups because we didn't have the facility uh, to fit everybody in the weight room at once. We could fit everybody outside, but 
you have to get lifted as, as well. So what we used to do is we had to separate the two. Well, what I started doing is I was like, man, they're just getting such a long session and then they're going to play other sports or doing other things. You're just kind of getting overloaded. So I actually utilize kind of what you're discussing there to where we would go through like a plyometric session, a quick sprint session. Then they would get a shorter lift to where they're just kind of getting dosed with it at that time. Because at that time, it's not really our off season, off season. It's kind of like more of a maintenance to where we're introducing them and getting them ramped up to going into the off season. So that's one way, you know, I've kind of actually used something that you said there. The second thing that stuck out as you were talking there is that kids are only going to be as invested as they are interested. Like you said, basically there that, okay, do I like uh, bicep curls? Not really, but can I throw some in there at the end of the week on a volume day? It's a, it's a volume day, you know? So like, how can you get your kids to invest in your program? That's really going to be the retention and success rate of your program I've found. No, no, no question. As I've been in this profession a long time and I, you know, the, the cliche, which I think is true is and it's, I, I kind of like that's true. I kind of like it, but it's this, that if you have the best program ever written, right? Scientifically sound, every principle followed, every set rep percentage calculated to the 10th, 10th degree. And someone doesn't try hard doing that. They're not going to see results, right? At the same token, take a decent program and work at it like a lunatic and you're going to see results to get better, right? And the example, and as a strength coach, it hurts to hear that a little bit, right? Because we want to believe that the sets, reps, X and O's are super important. And to an extent, they definitely are. But if you don't have that buy-in and that effort, the X and O sets of reps aren't going to matter in my opinion, right? Um, and the proof of that, I think, that the last 10 years has been the rise of CrossFit, right? Now, we consider all day and debate the sets, the reps, doing Olympic lifts with general population, people over overtraining, all that stuff. What you can't argue is people that go to CrossFit, they buy in. They pay every month. Their friends are at CrossFit. They're cool with their coaches, and they look forward every day to a break from their you know kind of boring day job life to go and do box jumps and snatches and push presses and all that stuff, right? And what I think CrossFit did probably better than any other commercial fitness program is – they took that high school, college weight room environment that people missed when it, that was out of their life and they're you know, young professionals and gave it back to them for a fee, right? You come in, you, you know, me and you are training and we're doing a pull-up contest and we're, we're doing box jumps and we're doing stuff we probably haven't done since we were younger and we're having fun and being friends about it. And then I think that's one thing that you kind of see. How much, number one, it showed me two things. So how good of an experience the weight room can be for people that as adults, they still seek that same kind of effort camaraderie, coaching the way they did when they were playing competitive sports, right? And number two, it shows you that even if guys like me and you can debate the actual program of CrossFit that were blue in the face, you can't argue that the people that do it and are committed to it see some physical improvement over the time, right? Would I join a CrossFit gym right now? Probably not, right? But would I, do I think it's the right thing for some people? Yeah, it's, it's fine. Yeah, so good points there. And and kind of to go back, I haven't said this in a while, but like whenever the study that Cal Deeds did where he looked at all the periodization models and he found that like based off of the trends he saw in his training that it only fit like 10 or 15% of his clientele, the basic period, linear periodization model, whereas other ones, they, they benefited more if he started the periodization scheme backwards or something. You know, so it's, it's kind of crazy. Like sometimes I feel like we put, like you said, so many nuts and bolts in places. And I'm just like, just have a program there, do it consistently, and you're going to see some results from it. Now, do do we care? Yes, because this is our profession. This is what we love, and it's what we, you know, we spend hours and hours on. So, obviously, we debate and we think about these different things, but consistency is really key in everything, for sure. Yeah, the consistency is key. And I think, you know, in our profession, we work in the academic setting. I think we do owe it to the players and the coaches and the administration, and in your case, probably the, the players' families are all a little bit younger than the ones I deal with, to give them the best we have. 
Like I'm gonna, if I'm asking a kid to give me ultimate effort at a program, I feel like I should put ultimate effort putting that program together, right? And coaching it and spotting it and making it and administrating it every day. I think that's one, and that's one thing I think the players can tell the coaches that don't do that. And if you're giving half effort, they might go ahead and decide to give half effort. But, you know, guys, like I, I think both of us and probably most of the listeners of your show, if you're going to ask a person to do 100% effort on something, you should be giving 100% effort to it as well. Absolutely. So let's kind of dive into some different things here as far as looking at that starting point again, which we were referencing at the beginning of the conversation here. You kind of, this kind of peaked out earlier whenever you were mentioning body weight squats and being proficient in basic movements. Uh, can we go into depth a little bit more about how you attempt to give your athletes a starting point, a holistic background to where, because I, I really find that if you're able to move, in basic manners that it's going to eventually translate to sport. Like we have to get specific at some point, but it is beneficial to be able to squat with your heels on the ground, to be able to squat whenever you're, you know, knees over toes in some occasions. Um, so can you talk about some of those different ways in which you would attempt to, to work towards a broader base of sure. movement for your athletes? Sure. Kind of, I've done that a couple of different ways over the years, right? But what I, what I've been working on the last year is this model and I don't want to, I'm not trying to get a, a cheap plug for the book, but we put a chapter in the book about a foundation exercises, right? And we kind of identified six foundational movements that if you can do well, that's a good foundation for pretty much everything else you're going to do in the weight, room, right? So those movements are a squat, a lunge, a hip hinge, and then a hip bridge, and then an upper body push and an upper body pull. And if you could teach those six motor patterns, and then what we kind of provided was, I think this is an effective model, even way outside of the book, kind of a baseline for each one, right? So our barbell back squat is our foundational movement for the squat. And you can regress that to a goblet squat, a box squat, a bodyweight squat, or you can progress that to a front squat, an overhead squat, whatever it might be. We did the same thing on the RDL, same thing on the hip hinge, uh, same thing on the push and the pull, right? So for upper body press to make it, easy, a, a barbell bench press is kind of our baseline, right? Now you can regress that to uh, a push-up, a scissor, whatever it might be, and you can progress that to a, a uh, incline bench press, whatever it might be moving forward, right? Physio ball bench press, however you want to do it. So we kind of look at those six movements and I'm kind of taking that into my everyday coaching now that we're going to look at those six movements and can we do them? And the thing is with endurance athletes, sometimes it's particularly older ones, they can't even do those six foundation movements with body weight, let alone any kind of implement or dumbbells, med ball, kettlebells, whatever it might be. So that in some ways, training that person is fairly easy, right? We just got to get better at moving. We got to get better at our body weight squat, our body weight lunge, hip hinge with no weight at all, maybe a broomstick, something like that. And then we can start moving forward. Where it becomes a little bit more challenging, I think, is the people that are maybe good at one but not at another. Right. And then you got to start. It's a little bit easier to pick. You got to pick and choose a little bit what drills and what modalities you're going to prescribe and figure out where the problem is. Right. So as you have a problem with a, with a squat, it could be ankle mobility. It could be knee mobility. It could be a tight back. It could be a weak core. It could be poor shoulder girdle posture. It's kind of like a, it could be 17 different things. And that's where I think experience in the game comes in a little bit to kind of eyeball test somebody and be like, oh, your problem is X. Here's some exercises to help you get back to a good starting baseline, right? Because I'm, I'm as big a fan of the technology and the cameras and all this stuff, biomechanic analysis that's out there, but it's not always realistic, right? So I think to some extent, especially if you work with larger groups, get your eyeball test some things and be and, and prescribe quickly. And then maybe if you get the chance later on, review the tape, look at the data, look at the force plates and say like, okay, so we corrected that, put the Band-Aid on the problem today. Here's a long-term solution to the problem for the next semester or whatever it might be. 
All good points there. And kind of referencing back to an episode I had a good bit back with Pat Davidson uh, and like how he categorizes everything. And he has all these different regressions in which he uses. And, you know, I've used things like that because I need to have things in place that if things aren't working out in a larger group setting that I can say, these are probably my three or four prescriptions, this, and, you know, like you said, you eyeball it and you say, okay, Let's let's regress it back. Let's make it easier. You referenced the goblet squat. Pat Davidson uses the goblet squat too as a starting point. And like like he, I've heard him reference. Don't start with a half court shot. Start with the layup. That's a, because, that's a great analogy. That's because good. you want to make people feel confident in their ability. Um, you know, everybody wants to throw weight on the bar. Everybody wants to do the same as everyone. But like, we don't all have the same like makeup. Some people aren't going to be good squatters no matter what we do with them. It's just that their body is not organized in a manner that's going to be beneficial for squatting, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think that's one thing our profession probably needs to get better at that we really on social media and then stuff at the CrossFit games on ESPN, we really elevate the top 1% of people, right? Like this guy could squat 1300 pounds and you're starting to squat 135 and you are, you are a million miles away from accomplishing that. Right. As you should be, because he dedicated 20 years of his life to doing something like that. Right. But I think to some extent, we got to do a better job of selling to younger kids, beginner athletes, and just general population people that it's really not about getting them on a record board. Some people are just, they're going to train like lunatics. They're never getting them on any kind of record board, but they're going to be healthier and better and stronger than when they started. Right. So use a cliche. I always tell people the race isn't against you and player X. The race is against you and the, you today and the, the you you were yesterday. Right. Because my attitude is I, I always I do a coaches once in a while that they're like we need to have seven or more guys bench press 225. And we need to have everybody on the team run a six minute mile. And my attitude is like, I understand standards. I understand you want to have some standards to hold your team to. But number there's two problems that number one, what you said, not everybody's body is going to allow them to perform at that level. Right. So my attitude is let's look at what they did in September versus what they did in November and see if we made improvement for that person, that body type. I think that's the, a much better way to look at that the older I get. And the other thing that I don't want to hate on sport coaches too much, but how many times do you have sport coaches that want to implement these rigid standards? Right. And then the best player on a team can't make them and they still put them on the field. And then or a, a player that's not very skilled crushes the standard and they're not rewarded for it in any way versus the good player that didn't do any of the the work to pass this conditioning test, whatever it might be. So I, I, as I get older in my profession, I thought they're like sport coaches of like, I'll help you with these, these standards and pick something these kids can do, but you got to be ready for the blowback that if you don't come through on your, your threat to them, they're not going to respect you anymore. And by extension, they're going to stop respecting me if I'm a part of that. So I really kind of draw a line in the sand now with these younger sport coaches that are coming into my job where I'm like, I spent close to 20 years developing my level of respect and my level of accountability with these kids. I'm not going to let you take it away from me. And that's one thing I think that in, in strength and conditioning, we always want to move on to the next job so quick. It's a little off topic, but move on to the next job so quickly. But by me staying at one place for so long, two things have happened. One, I've become one of the constants in the department, right? I've been there for 36 head coaches. They come and go. It's just the way it goes, right? Um, I've been there for thousands of student athletes. The athletic trainer, but I'm like, I'm the thing these kids know that if they stay here for four years, I'm staying with them four years at this point, right? So a couple of things have happened. Number one, I had that love and respect with the player and I'm not going to let a coach ruin it for me. But number two, I always tell young coaches, I'm not sure at the high school level, but the college level, we're not getting paid that much, man. There's a couple of guys making 500000 plus that we hear about them on ESPN on Saturday afternoon. But for every one guy making you know, close to a million, there's 30 of us making close to minimum wage. 
You know what I mean? But I always say by staying in one place for a long time, I've been able to become an adjunct professor. I've been able to write books and present at conferences because I'm, I'm, I feel confident enough in my, my main responsibilities. I can do these other things. And I feel you can jump around from job to job. You never really get that comfortable. And, uh, and I'm not saying that that's, that's the answer for some people. My answer was to stay here and just become as good as I could at this day job and then get some, some side things going on the side around that. All great points there. And to kind of close this part out and, and move on to another direction, I just I often find like I, I say this often on on uh, my podcast, I find kind of the opposite polarities here. And what we're referencing is this holistic approach, trying to give everybody these general movement patterns. But we've also referenced the need to individualize as we've been early in this conversation. So can you talk a little bit about you, you talked about rigid standards, right? So how like how do you attempt to adjust things whenever you see you got a six, seven basketball player and, and you're doing a squat like how do you bring variation into larger group settings like that? How are some ways yeah. that you've been able to do that through all your time in the, in the uh, field? Cool. couple things, man. The way I kind of view the room, the human body at this point in my career is about 80% of what we do in a weight room is good for everybody. Right. So those basic motor patterns, the idea of general overload and progressive overload, the idea you need recovery in between that kind of stuff, I think, holds true across the board. Exercise wise, I think if you stay with a couple key movements that you find important, in my case, it's the foundation six. In your case, it might be a little different. I think mean, you can't really go wrong with those movements. Right. That last 20 percent is where I think we get it specialized for sport and for individual athlete, right? So, for example, if I'm training swimmers and they're swimming 7,000 yards a day, do I think the overhead press is a great exercise for most people? Absolutely. What I do with a kid that swims 10,000 yards a day, maybe not, right? Um, same thing. Is doing a front squat a great exercise? Yeah, I love doing it myself. That six seven basketball guy? Maybe not, right? So I think you got to be a little bit – I think you got to have some things you think are super important and principles you don't violate, but then you got to look at the reality of the situation you're in, the bodies you're dealing with, and what that body can tolerate, right? So what I normally do, for example, take, take that basketball example, which I think is, is pretty valuable, um, If I'm, or any, any team really, we're all going to squat today, right? So maybe we get a guy that's great at squatting and he's doing like – six sets of squats, just crushing a squat rack, right? Maybe the other guy on the team that's struggling with it, he's doing six sets of squats with super lightweight, working on mobility and getting low. And then maybe after that kind of kind of mobility session in the squat rack, we're going to go to a leg press or a leg extension or a step up to really get some some muscular work in that, that that guy's body is just impossible to do in the squat rack at this time. But my goal is to always have them coming back to this core main exercise because my the joke I make with older people is what I do a lot in endurance world today, I don't run because I have tight Achilles, I have to do the elliptical. Okay, that's great for cardio. What are you doing to address the tight Achilles that won't let you run? Because if you make that decision at 40 and you live another 40, 50 years, if you're lucky, you're never going to run again. So my thing is look at the way the body is now. Make the adjustments and, and, and uh, concessions you need to make now with the idea of we're getting better and trying to get back to regular human functioning. I think one thing we've done in sports in the last couple of years that is not great is we've just kind of resigned ourselves to this guy can't lunge. This girl can't do overhead stuff. And I, don't, I think we're making that decision people when they're 18 years old. I mean, well, good luck with the rest of your life. What are we going to do to help them get better and get back to functioning from then? So I think something like, like this example we're talking about, everybody could do most of the work I prescribe, but we're going to make change, make sets, sets, reps, and intensities to, to make it work for everybody involved, if that makes sense.
Yeah, that all makes makes a lot of sense. And it, it, like I said, sometimes we like to overthink and like you go too far into one realm like you were just kind of referencing. You go all specific or you go all general, like trying to find I'm all for trying to find that common ground where things yeah. can come together and work out for the best for everyone. Right. Kind of like you were referencing there. So the next point I'd like to talk about here is about the work week and you, you work with a lot of different sports. So you can talk about, I, I know I have a lot of people probably listening that, that are uh, familiar with baseball. Uh, so you can okay. perhaps talk about the organization of your baseball team and how you would arrange the work week there. And I, I'm interested to, to kind of hear, I guess, how you would prescribe your volumes and intensities uh, based, based upon that. So let's talk a little bit about how we would arrange our work week uh, and kind of structure all that together. Okay, for you want to, in our, the way college baseball goes, we have an, our out of season is basically the fall, our in season is spring. Which one do you want to hear more about? Because I can give you either breakdown. It's completely Let, you. Let's go. Uh, let's go out of season. Okay, perfect. Okay, so we'll start September first. It'll go through the first week in December. So we're looking at about a fourteen week program, right? Uh, we'll train four days a week, which is. Um, on just say for example, on Monday, and it's kind of what you said before, you have the stations because of the situation you're in. So on, this is a thing I put together a couple of years ago because of the facility I was in, which is very nice, but not ideal for 40 baseball players. And so what I do is on Monday and Thursday, the position guys are in the racks, okay? On Monday, we do some kind of Olympic lift barrier. We're not doing cleans and snatches because these guys' elbows and shoulders are super important, super delicate. Or we might do a clean pull, might do a heavy shrug, might do a box jump, something like that, right? Then we'll do some kind of quad-dominant leg exercise, like a squat or a lunge. And we normally squat on the Monday, do some kind of lunge or step up on the Thursday. And then we'll do some kind of hamstring-dominant exercise to finish off RDL, kettlebell swing, glute ham raise, whatever it might be that day, Right. Um, our pitchers or position guys doing that on Monday and Thursday. On Mondays and Thursdays, they're using our dumbbells, our kettlebells, our med balls, and our machines. And then we flip-flop the groups on the opposite days. So you got pretty one big heavy day in the rack, right, where you're squatting, trap bar, deadlift, RDL, that kind of thing. And then you got one almost recovery day where you're doing your dumbbell work, your med ball work, that kind of stuff. And then we, so you get two days of each each week. And that's kind of the way we break our work down. I start out kind of very basic linear periodization, which is we'll start out about four sets of 12 or big exercises, cycle that down a couple of weeks to, you know, four sets of 10, then maybe five sets of eight, something like that. Go down to five or six reps per set as we get closer to Thanksgiving and, and the Christmas holiday, right? Um, and then what I do, I kind of to keep everything moving and so many guys in the room at one time, we'll do our big movement. So maybe that's a, in this, I don't want to be talking about squat squats to death. I promise your listeners, we do other exercises, but it's going to come up again. Um, we'll do a set of squats, superset it with a, with a box jump and like a core exercise of some kind, right? And then we go to our upper body stuff. It might be like a dumbbell bench, a dumbbell row, and maybe a plank or some kind of a of static abdominal exercise of some kind to keep everybody moving. So one guy's lifting, one guy's spotting, and then their partners are doing the, the opposite of that movement, the pull or the plyo or the ab exercise based on what they're doing that day. And I, I keep it really basic. And I think one of the things, there's certain times of the year, depending on what team I'm working with, I will alter that some, right? Or I'll decide we're going to maybe maybe do a test-type workout at the end of a month and kind of get some numbers again and see how that goes. And we'll kind of cycle our reps down for that. Then we'll start again the next month. But it's kind of a, excuse me, a basic linear periodization model and just trying to keep the volume relatively low with the idea that our weight room volume might seem low, but 
We're running a couple days a week outside of this. We're doing skill work outside of this. Some guys might be working on the weekend down their own. I don't know about that. So you got to kind of take all that into consideration when putting your workouts together for a team that likes to train, right? If you got a team that doesn't like to train, probably none of that's that big of a consideration. You probably go a little higher in the volume. But sometimes a team like baseball, since you, you know, want to use them as an example, I kind of keep it on a lower end to try to avoid that overtraining and the things that kind of happen towards the end of a semester. So just a couple points that we can bounce off of that. Uh, with, with you referencing your starting point, as far as intensities and percentages, like for those those bigger lifts, um, I could probably rationalize what it would be, but just to make sure, what what would you probably be somewhere on those, those you said 12 reps per set, 10 reps per set? Like how, how are you going to advance your intensities as far as percentages there? Or do you use percentages because some don't? Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of percentages, right? And I like to have – like a rough idea of how much weight a guy can move, right? And make sure they know from the very beginning, if we're doing a set of 12, reps 9, 10, 11, and 12 need to be hard every set kind of thing, right? So you're just and doing I, RPE pretty much? Yeah, kind of an RPE. And I realize that's kind of a old school way to look at this, right? But here's what I've kind of found is that, let's say, for example, you do a squat test on September 1st, and the guy grows a 100-pound squat. So 100% for them is 100 pounds, just to make the example easy, right? Now, that's that's day one. Now, we, we put a percentage up on the board that we're doing 80% of that. Three weeks have gone by. They're exhausted from being away at school and all the training they're doing. They're dehydrated. It's a Friday morning. Maybe they went out the night before. And now that 80% feels like 110%. Um, so I think you got to give people a little bit. Let me, let me give this one caveat in a second. In team sports that are not competitive, Olympic lifters, Olympic weightlifters, Olympic level track and field men and women, I think you got to give them a little bit of leadway in the weight room because they have so many other things going on and pulling their attention and their physical capabilities away, right? Now, if I was working powerlifters again or Olympic lifters, I think I would be much more of a stickler for we need 88% for two or whatever it might be that day. Um, but I think with general sport, you know, field athletes, you need a little bit more gray area and let them have the responsibility to work within that area a little bit more. Yeah, and that's one thing I can agree with as well. Like even in my short time in this field that I've grown a lot is like maybe we don't get those other two reps. Like if I'm working super intense for that day, even with powerlifters, because I work with powerlifters, maybe we don't get those super intense sets in for that day because we just don't have it in the tank or we back it off. And like you said, uh, you know, that feels like 100% whenever it's normally 85%. We, You know, that's why the beauty of velocity-based training and, and all these different metrics, which we have at our disposal in this day and age, uh, it just depends on what scale you have them at. Uh, so talking about power base, is that something that becomes more prominent, uh, I guess you would say, in that springtime whenever they're getting closer to season? Are you working down towards lower rep ranges, lower percentages, more speed strength at that time with your baseball uh, players? Yeah, we'll, we'll cycle the reps down. Like I said, I don't go – I do. we will do some triples at the very end of the fall semester. Don't go much lower than that. And then, uh, unfortunately, man, college is a weird setup where you train for baseball, where you tr get to train all fall, right? And then the guys go home for about three weeks, and then we got about a month of you ready when they get back, right? Now, we're lucky. A lot of our guys do train at home and do a great job. And a lot of them are local and can train with me over the holidays because I'm in the room every day if they want to be there. Um, the NCAA won't less require them. But they can definitely come in and I'll work with them. And then we kind of kind of have to rush through January. And in February, we're playing games again. It's real quick. But if, if, if it was a perfect world and that break wasn't built into the college schedule, I would definitely take those last couple weeks and just 
do you know low reps, high velocities, good good speed, good move moving the bar at a good pace every time, and then be doing a ton of plows, a ton of box jumps, med ball throws, stuff like that, and then hopefully get ready for the season that way. And then once we're into the season, it's kind of it's kind of kind of not a that a cliche. We're kind of kind of kind of maintain what we do in the off season. We'll, we play a, a three game conference schedule every Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Monday, the guys are off. Only thing they got to do is come in and lift at any point in the day. So Monday, we'll do our, our quote unquote real lift. Right? We'll go on the rack for the position guys. We'll do some kind of squat, some kind of RDL, some kind of explosive movement, and then we'll play a midweek game Tuesday or Wednesday. And then Thursday, we'll lift again, but we'll do more of a dumbbell, med ball, kind of recovery type day. And then they're playing again on Friday. So there's really not a lot of time to train in season. I'm the kind of strength coach though, where if a kid says he wants to train, he can get in, his, his class schedule allows it. We'll do some extra stuff in season if they want to, right? Um, and our pitchers kind of just follow a pretty basic five or seven day rotation where the Friday guy throws on Friday, he lifts on Saturday, uh, bullpen on Monday, I guess it would be, and then we'll lift again Tuesday or Wednesday, gets ready to go on Friday as we go through the season that way. Okay, and I'm so to rationalize as well. We've talked to. I'll bring the squat back up just for you. Right. Uh, nice. So, so uh, I know that you said you like you like generalized movements and things, and that you feel like sometimes the specificity is not warranted. Perhaps is what I've kind of gotten from the earlier part of the uh, conversation. But as far as like baseball uh, pitchers, I've seen like a lot of reverse lunges and things such yeah. as that are split squats. Do you utilize those, or do you tend to use more bilateral movements with your we're, setting? We're, with our pitchers, if we're going to be in a rack twice a week. Right. I try to do one day where a big, you know, centerpiece of the workout lift bilateral. And the next day or three will be like three days later. The big thing of the day will be unilateral. Right. So it might be a back squat on the Monday. And then a Thursday, we'll do a lunge, a step up, a split squat, whatever it might be. And I think I, I don't think you can really deny that both are important. Right. And I think that the, the stuff we've been talking about the last couple of years of pitchers, the idea that unilateral leg power is important to me is inarguable, definitely important, right? But I don't think you also can't tell me that doing some bilateral work and getting good at a back squat, possibly a front squat, the kid's body can take it. That even even a leg press, we don't like any machines, but there's a there might be a place for that in this conversation too. For just straight absolute power with the lower extremity, not in the worry about stabilization and posture and stuff like that. Um, I think there's a value in both things. I mean, you got to develop both. And I really think if you're not developing both, you're kind of doing your athlete a disservice. I think both are important. Yeah, we were talking about speed and power podcast before we got on here. You were, you were previously on there and I've been on there. And like really what I think I didn't say on that show, but what I was getting at is that it's really all about motor unit recruitment whenever I'm going after strength. And that's that's just unabashedly what I'm trying to do at that moment. And then later on, we can work on the intermuscular and intramuscular coordination and all those different things, which, which we're kind of referencing. So like whenever I'm going bilateral, it's like, dude, let's make the muscles fire and let's get as strong as we possibly can without the time time domain and all these other things be damned right yeah i i think one thing that that are, are kind of the popular thing in our profession has kind of gotten better about but maybe went too far in one direction all the idea of like you said functional strength and potential it's it's all important right but i think so many particularly younger kids you might see this more in high school but I definitely see it in college is their just lack of general overall strength is so bad Right. Uh, to me, to, to me, to address all those other things we talked about without addressing that basic strength foundation, you're building a house on a bad foundation, in my opinion. Right. So I think you're good at the basics, get good at some basic moving patterns and move some weight around and have some muscle and then think about how do I do this one side of my body at a time? How do I do this? I'm standing on Eric's pad. How do I do this while I'm catching a med ball? 
kind of thing. But I think um, I think there's a place for both kinds of training, but I think going too far off the deep end either side is kind of a mistake. Yeah, that's a great point. If you don't have the starting strength, you'll never be able to produce power in the long run. Like we were talking about, eventually you got to you got to chain that power uh, production to it. Like you, you said, med balls and jumps. And man, I'm I'm I could sit here and talk all day about yeah. plyometrics and jump training and sprints. I love that stuff. But if you don't have that starting strength, you don't have the motor unit recruitment. We can't yeah, we can't I, make I, it fire fast, right? Right, and the the the, uh, the the cliche I've grown to hate. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how much weight you can lift. I just care if you could do this other thing, right? But don't tell me that getting stronger isn't going to help you do that other thing, almost whatever it is, right? Um, so I think, you know, get get it, get strong, whatever that means for you, and then address these other, other situations you might have. Yeah, awesome. So I'm going to give you an opportunity now to talk probably about something that's right in your wheelhouse. And, you know, I'm going to give you a chance again to talk about your book here in a minute. But your book is mostly about resistance training for endurance athletes. So let's kind of bring that into the fold here. Uh, I normally don't talk about endurance athletes, but my last two podcasts have been about it. So I, right. I'm, I'm enjoying these uh, conversations for sure. So what would you say some of the largest misconceptions are about running and weight training and how these two can intermingle and be beneficial for one another? I think the, the biggest thing in the endurance community, let me explain myself real quick to your listeners. Should I, I don't I said this yet. I've been a strength coach for 20 years. My background's in powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting. At about the 10-year mark, so 2011, I ran a marathon, right? And I just I, – number one, it's probably with – the, with the exception of what I've done in the classroom when I was younger, the most eye-opening experience I had as a strength coach because all of a sudden I realized what our cross-country kids are going through day-to-day, what our distance swimmers are going through day-to-day. And I think so many strength coaches have no frame of reference for those kind of athletes, right? So the last 10 years, I've run several marathons, and I was training with a, with a doctor of athletic training on our campus, Dr. Richard Borgers, and we both like to lift together. We'd run together and lift together almost every day after work. And one day we just kind of had a conversation that so many of our running friends didn't lift at all. Right. Not that they weren't doing it incorrectly. They weren't doing it at all. And we're like, well, we're, you know, we're older guys. We're getting close to 40 years old. We're, we're healthy. We're not getting injured. We're getting faster. The one thing we're doing that most of our peers are not doing is lifting weights with this, this running. Right. So we kind of toyed around that deal a little bit. Like, why don't we try to put together an ideal program in this book for an endurance athlete that wants to add resistance training to what they're doing, right? And I think the biggest, the, the joke I've been making the whole, whole year I've been talking about the book is, if you take a camera out to any race from a 5K to an ultra marathon, at the starting line, everybody looks great, right? Those, that first mile, it's good posture, it's good foot position, everything's perfect. Take that same camera to the same race to the finish line, and everybody's a train wreck, right? That running mechanics is terrible. The breathing is bad. The posture is bad. They're not thinking about what they're doing with their arms and legs. They're just trying to get through it, right? So my thing is a lot of what's happening in that the course of that race is a breakdown in muscular strength and endurance that is allowing them to have good running mechanics and good posture and good breathing patterns throughout the course of that race. So what can we do with this person that wants to run and compete to get them strong enough to go through the finish line and look the way they did at the starting line? And that's kind of what the premise of the book is that just kind of it's not you know stacking 45s on the bar and clouds of chalk and, and knee wraps to do your squats. It's. Yesterday, I lifted 25-pound dumbbells. Today, I want to bump up to the 27 and a half. You know what I mean? Or yesterday, I couldn't do any kind of kind of step up. Today, I'm going to do a step up with a kettlebell and, and get a little bit better than I did the day before. And that's the biggest thing is kind of the idea that endurance athletes are breaking down a lot and having bad races, bad events, bad training periods because they're weak. And I think we don't need to – 
to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to you know, stop running to lift weights for a year. We keep running, we keep swimming, we keep biking, keep doing our triathlons, but add in a couple sessions a week to get stronger and work on our mobility. And now all of a sudden we're, we're finishing strong to use a cliche. Yeah. And it gives you balance. Like what you're talking about gives great balance too, because like I came from a weightlifting background, still lift weights a lot. I'm not the most dependable endurance runner. I'd rather go sprint probably and, and run some forties uh, or flying tens or whatever. But like that balance, a sprint session versus a weight room session, a weight room session versus a sprint session. Like even for somebody who's my age, you, you, you find like it kind of energizes you, you know, because if you just go again and again and again and do the same thing, you, you kind of lose focus and the ability to be like we, what we've talked about well-rounded uh, something else as well. Like you could probably say that you agree with this. I would, I would think that the lower body and the things like I started programming a lot for the considerations of running, because like I said, in football, in basketball, in baseball, all these sports, you're running, you spend so much time trying to run. So I started doing a lot of my auxiliary programming based around making someone a more powerful runner, a more uh, structurally more resilient, you know, in their lower body. Um, so if you want to talk about any of those different things and, and like kind of some of your light bulb moments about how you've maybe transferred some of those things from running to the weight room. You can do that as well. Great, man. I think that the mistake we see with a lot of, in my case, college cross country kids, your case, maybe high school cross country kids, and it goes to adults too, because they, the, the seventh grader that's running cross country and having an issue, if the issue goes unaddressed becomes the 27 year old adult marathoner that has the same issues they have when they were in seventh grade. Right. Um, but I think it's kind of looking at what, what's holding them back. Right. And what, what's the, the stumbling block in their training and kind of trying to fill in and, and correct that problem as best you can. Right. And a lot of times a lack of strength is the problem. And a lot of times it might be a mobility issue, right? Because if you do a, a movement that running pattern for you, whatever your running pattern is, and you do it a million times a week for 10 years, that's only going to get progressively worse. Right. So I think the idea is to kind of, you know, whatever it might be, if it's tight hamstrings, if it's tight hip flexors, if it's lack of Achilles mobility, whatever it might be, find the things you need to work on and dedicate not hours and hours a week, but maybe 10 minutes a day on top of your already you know, um, admittedly busy schedule. And eventually that problem starts getting better, right? Um, I think when I start looking at the body a little bit, like we look at running for a marathon, you don't run 26 miles the first day you start training. You run a mile, then two miles, then 10 miles, whatever it might be. Um, and over time, you get in a good enough shape to run a marathon, right? The body to me is kind of the same thing. Having good mobility, having good posture, moving well without pain as you get older, this is not going to happen in the day you decide to address the problem, but it might, you know, be, you might be able to cure that problem a year down the line. All good points. And going back to my uh, previous podcast with another great Italian name, Dominic Stasuli, we talked a lot about like she had these three different things she talked about that she sees most commonly with her endurance uh, athletes. And it's poor proprioception. Uh, it's the it's core strength or the core pelvis relationship. The pelvis thing really stood out to me because yeah. I've had issues with that myself. And she talked about sitting and, and the manner in which we sit may weaken us anteriorly because we're always so crunched. Well, so whenever we get out there everything is just bunched up and we're so tight because even high schoolers that I deal with so young so pliable they sit down all day though and, and you see them have these mobility issues that's what I was going to get to doing all these ground-based mobility things I found great value in doing a lot of quadruped things and and showing the pelvis how to move as well yeah there's one thing we identify in the book and I'm going to be completely honest this is more 
uh, Dr. Borger's part of the book than mine, but obviously I've had a part in it, is we find a lot of endurance athletes have a problem with using kind of pelvic to core relationship and over-rotating when they're running, right? So their right arm is punching forward and their whole upper body is going to the left to counterbalance that movement, right? Then the same thing happens on the other side. So if you do that for a mile, you might not even notice the difference, right? But if you lose that amount of energy and spend that many extra calories over the course of 20 miles, now you have a huge problem. So we had a big part of the book about anti-rotation exercises and how to start combating that, right? So stuff like a payoff press with a band or stuff like a, a hip a hip or a shoulder tap from a push-up bridge position and kind of resist the urge to rotate. And it's kind of weird, we had, but the, this semester I started implementing that with a lot of my athletes and just kind of eyeballing what it looks like them doing it. And you'd be surprised how many big, strong guys and girls that can put some weight on the bar and move it are really do poorly with that anti-rotation stuff. And then you take them out of the weight room and let them run and you see it immediately once you start looking for it. Right. So I think that's one of the, uh, I, the points you wrote up before, I think totally valid. I think my little two cents of that would be being able to not rotate the body when you don't want it to rotate and move in a straight line, literally from A to B. Cause we particularly as people with baseball a lot, we're always watching videos and learning things and hearing about centers of how to rotate harder and be more aggressive in the batter's box. Totally important for those guys and girls, baseball, softball players, right? But if you're running, you got to attack that a little bit differently and you're kind of resisting the body's urge to rotate and being strong where you want to be strong. And in some cases, letting the body move in a natural way that's not kind of jerking itself out of position every time you stride. The body is just, it, everything chains together, everything moves together. And it's until you begin to look at the macroscopic things that are occurring and, and stop focusing on all the micro, you kind of begin to see how things go together. Uh, like my podcast, I, I use as much as, all, as I possibly can from the ground up. If the foot's off, you see things begin to wing out too. Um, that's that's yeah. another thing as well, uh, working from the ground up into the pelvis and even to the contralateral side. So I'm a total biomechanics running nerd. Trying to introduce or implement resistance training to endurance athletes is looking at those kind of little things and what little things you could do every day to make your training go smoother and extend your career and have some better finishes in the process. Awesome. So uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to kind of plug where people can find your book, where people can find you and uh, anything else that you have out there at this time. Cool, man. The, uh, the book is Finish Strong, Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes, myself and Dr. Richard Borgers. It's on Amazon. It's in Barnes & Nobles. It's in a couple of running specialty stores across the country. Um, if you get it, I'd love for you to leave a review. Tell me what you think of it. That'd be great. Uh, if you want to follow us on Instagram, it's at finish underscore strong underscore book. So again, at finish underscore strong underscore book. Uh, we try to put a lot of good trades, not just advertisements. Like obviously I want to tell people on this podcast here. I'm super happy about that. We try to put some information out there and be a part of the running community as best we can. And then if you want to reach out to me, it's just angelo.gingerelli at gmail.com is the easiest one. Or on the Seton Athletics website, use that email as well. As far as other things going on, that's really about it, man. I'm wrapping up my 17th year at Seton Hall. I got another something, my second, my first summer kind of promoting this book and kind of getting the message of endurance of resistance training for endurance athletes out there. And then, uh, you know, we'll start year 18 next year and keep, keep running. Well, congratulations on such a career and uh, such longevity uh, in this field, because, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who come into this and it's short lived and congratulations on successfully publishing a book. Thank you so much for taking time to sit down with me. It's been a really enjoyable conversation. It's great, man. Thank you very much. Keep up the great work on the show. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Make sure to check the show notes for links to Angelo's book, Finish Strong, Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes.
Don't forget to subscribe to keep up with the latest content and leave a rating and review if you feel led to do so.